Hello, it's July 21st, 2021. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a great weekend and are having a great start to your week. Uh, Please stay tuned until the end of the episode for some maybe awesome announcements. And with that, let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1998, and in the serene region of Muskoka, Ontario, many people flock here to take in this city's beauty. As a matter of fact, one report states that Muskoka is so beautiful and pretty that it's one of the top tourist destinations in all of Canada. Luscious greenery and hillsides surround the area and many folks who live in other areas of Canada flock here to pack up and make Muskoka their home in their early adult life or later years. Muskoka is also known for its huge art scene. Lots of amateur and established artists reside in this scenic town to possibly gain influence on their art. But no matter what, according to many accounts, Here in the Muskoka area, one thing many residents can agree on is that Muskoka is one of the most beautiful and best places you can call home. However, in 1998 and throughout the rest of the late 90s, a series of mysteries happened amongst this serene town and left many in Muskoka with the impression that their region may not be as serene and safe as they thought. In the following case, you'll find out what these strange occurrences were that happened in this area, the investigation, and the sad aftermath in a case I title, Mystery in Muskoka. Muskoka region of Ontario, Canada, specifically in the city of Huntsville, just a little over 100 miles from Toronto and of around 20,000 people, many residents here welcomed many tourists to the area. 
but many here also conversed with their neighbors and enjoyed living their lives in the scenic area. One neighbor who many in Huntsville liked to greet was Joan Lawrence, who was in her 70s. Miss Joan Lawrence was a hermit-like neighbor in Huntsville, and many referred to her as the Cat Lady because she had a significant amount of stray cats that lived with and hung around her many times throughout the day. But who exactly was this Joan Lawrence? Well, let's go all the way back to 1921. According to a report, Joan Lawrence was born on January 10th, 1921. In her late teenage to early adulthood years, Joan became a journalist and a struggling poet. But according to people who knew her, she quickly became unimpressed with the journalism profession and she wrote an op-ed for the Ottawa Citizen newspaper saying, quote, journalism is a closed corporation, end quote. However, by her 20s, Joan went to work for a Toronto newspaper and was hired as a copywriter. She was also a reporter and editor at other respective publications. Joan eventually changed careers into advertising, but her love remained for writing poetry and one day writing a book. As luck would have it for Joan, in 1941, she wrote a small poem that was published in the Toronto Star. She titled it, The Little White Rose. And in her poem, she wrote, The window of the florist's shop was gay, with flowers in an orderly array. But all alone, one little white rose lay, forgotten in a dusty corner. There no eye could see that it had once been fair, no ear could hear its wishful prayer. Joan was having great luck getting her writing out there to the world, and in even better news, in 1943, Joan married an army lieutenant named Burton Gamble. However, even though Joan had an uptick of luck in her professional and private life, according to reports, in 1947, Joan was fired from her advertising job because according to her boss, Joan was trying to write a book while she was supposed to be working. Also, Joan and Burton eventually divorced, and according to a 1949 published notice, Joan requested a divorce due to adultery. It's not well known of what Joan did right after her divorce, but what is known is that sometime after her divorce, Joan moved to Toronto to care for her elderly parents until they passed on. And after their deaths, she moved to Muskoka, Ontario, specifically the city of Huntsville. It's also unclear when exactly Joan moved to Huntsville, but according to reports, many who had seen her around the city said they saw her in Huntsville, at least in the early 1980s. And also in the report, her name appeared on a local property deed in 1984. To the ones who saw Joan on an almost regular basis in Huntsville, Joan was petite, with stern brown eyes, and she stood out in the smallish community. Joan was quiet, 
but on the other hand, she wasn't afraid to speak her mind. And to one of her neighbors, Joan was, quote, tough as nails, end quote. She wore minimalist-style clothing, as some would describe a Salvation Army type, and it's unclear if Joan did or did not have some type of vehicle. But according to some Huntsville residents, Joan would hitchhike all through the city, even in the cold Canadian winters, to get around town. Sometimes, she'd offer some money to drivers, like $20, to get around town, but most refused to take her money. And curiously, and it's unknown exactly when, but sometime after her arrival into the new city, Joan began taking in unwanted litters of kittens, and she was soon living with dozens of cats. No one knows why Joan took in these stray cats, but soon enough, she became known as the Cat Lady. All around Huntsville, lots of folks would see Joan with her cats, but what many didn't exactly know was that, even though many assumed she was a little on the poorer end of financial stability, Joan was almost desolate and she lived in a shack that was in dire conditions. And she only lived off an $800 a month pension. What's worse is that in 1994, while living with almost 30 stray cats, Joan had stacked some newspapers too close to her wooden stove. And when she lit the stove, the newspapers caught fire and burned down her shack. Luckily, she and her cats were not injured, but now they were homeless. According to reports, after the tragedy with her home, Joan lived in various boarding houses and the Salvation Army. In many of her new places, her cats were not allowed to live with her, but she kept her cats in a particular section of a nearby forest and visited them regularly and fed them. By 1997, Joan needed somewhere else to live, and as luck would have it for her, she came across a retirement residence called Cedar Pines Christian Retirement Lodge, ran and owned by a real estate owner named Catherine Lan, who belonged to a reputable real estate business family. Here at the retirement home, it's not exactly known how her time was spent there, but according to an article, she lived in an attic and Joan eventually complained to her landlords, specifically Catherine, that the rent there was too high and eating away at most of her monthly pension. In return for her complaints, Catherine and the rest of the land family who owned residential property allowed Joan to move to another one of their properties, an 80 square foot shed to call home. This shed had no running water, provided little to no insulation or heat, and cost her around $600 a month, which defeated the purpose of her saving more for pension. But with this new deal, she was able to keep her cats. To Joan, this shed on the land's property was the only place that would take her and let her keep her cats. And without any family to take up for her, this, according to reports, was Joan's last hope. Joan's new home in the shed was on the land's property, called Land's Farm. And the property was marked with no trespassing and beware of dog signs. And the property kept Joan out of sight of the public. 
According to reports, Joan still hitchhiked to town on certain occasions. But by this point, Joan and her cats were in such squalid conditions that it seemed as if it could not get worse for her. But to Joan, this was where she had to live that she could barely afford, and most importantly, her cats could stay with her. However, according to a report, and unbeknownst to Joan, in 1998, a social worker who worked for Adult Protective Services was alerted about the horrendous conditions on the Land family property and went to investigate another elderly person who lived there who was reported to be living in squalid conditions just like Joan. During the investigation, the social worker found out that the Land family kept their tenants in disgusting conditions and they found Joan living in the shed. The social worker alerted police about the Land family property and shortly after the initial investigation, the social worker came back to the family property with the police and fire chief. And by the time they came back, Joan had been moved again into a non-working van on the property. Witnessing this, the social worker and police made the decision to get Joan off the land's property. And when they talked to her about it, she said she would only move if she could bring all 30 of her cats with her. Also around the time of the investigation, Joan was doing some investigating herself. When she discovered her $744 income tax check had not arrived. Joan always kept up with her money, especially because she didn't have much of it, and she always looked forward to her monthly check. What happened to her money? Joan had an idea. According to a report, Joan talked to a friend who did not live on the property and questioned whether or not she had received her income tax check. The friend said she did, and Joan said she would look into why she didn't receive hers, even though she had filed to get it. Later on, Joan told her friend and others in her community that she believed the Land family had something to do with her check missing, and she was going to confront them about it. But before she did, Joan approached a law firm to help her gather evidence against her landlords to bring to the police and while working with the law firm, she talked to the social worker and told them she was in danger. According to a report, she also told the social worker to call police if anything happened to her. In October 1998, staff at the law firm Joan hired told her that the paperwork for police was ready for her to file. But Joan never showed up to take the next steps. About a month later, Joan still hadn't gotten back in contact with the law firm, the social worker, or the police. And by November 25th, one of Joan's friends, who also lived on the land property, 
who had become close to her and who had not seen her for a few days, got in contact with his probation officer about his concerns about where Joan could be. The probation officer relayed this information to police and just before Joan could move to another property or officially file a complaint about her missing check or her landlords, Joan was officially declared a missing person. A police officer was assigned to Joan's case and during the investigation, the officer first started looking into Joan's landlords. According to reports, the officer learned that the land property was officially owned by Catherine Land's brothers, David, Walter, and Paul, and their uncle, Ron Allen, who also lived on the property. And when Joan moved on the property, Ron would often drive Joan to the post office and bank in town so she could cash her pension checks. The officer also learned from one of Joan's friends that Joan told her that one of her landlords had taunted her by stepping on her cats. And when the friend noticed that Joan used the restroom of a fast food restaurant to bathe instead of using the one in the farmhouse where Ron lived, she questioned Joan about it, in which Joan replied, quote, You just never know what he's going to do, end quote. The police also learned that Joan instructed the post office to give her mail only to her and not the lands. And according to another report, for reasons unknown, Joan shared a bank account with David Land, who had a card to access her bank account, while Joan did not have access to a card. And according to a police report, someone was accessing the account by a bank card around the same time that Joan was last seen. When police questioned David Land about Joan's disappearance, he provided many conflicting stories about Joan's whereabouts. He told police she was possibly in Vancouver or another part of Canada or in New York or Florida or Hawaii. He said she may have been with a friend or that he had just seen her in a neighboring town. And after about 90 minutes of questioning, David insisted she was still alive. Police also questioned other residents who lived or formerly lived on the land's properties. And what they had to say about where they stayed would be eye-opening to police. One resident said he thought he was in a psychiatric hospital because there was only 14 people living in the house and only four were able to carry on a conversation. And that 10 of them were deaf. Another resident told police he had no shower facilities and was told he'd be taken to Fern Glen, another land property, to shower once a week. Instead, he said he was taken there around once a month. Other residents said they had no access to a bathroom, and another said they were taken into town once in a while. But after a while, he felt that it was useless to go into town because he didn't even have money for a cup of coffee. Lastly, another resident said he was paying $700 to live at a property by the lands, but only had rice and pasta to eat. By now, according to the lead detective on the case, all signs were pointing to the Land family regarding Joan's disappearance. 
Police also spoke with the man who alerted police about Jones' disappearance, 57-year-old Alan Marshall. And he told police that since he lived near Joan around the time of her disappearance, he heard gunshots and saw a backhoe being operated. When more police arrived to the land property to investigate further, in December 1998, they discovered that the spot where Joan once lived had been thoroughly cleaned out. They searched the woods and all over the property to try and find any sign of Joan with the help of a backhoe and helicopters, but there was no trace of her. However, weeks into looking for any sign of Joan, police did discover something disturbing that Joan still had on the property, her beloved cats. And when police found almost a dozen of them, they were shot dead. As the investigation into Joan's disappearance and the lands continued over the next few months, leading into 1999, police began to look further into the lands. According to the Walrus publication, after the four siblings, Catherine, David, Walter, and Paul, finished high school, they began to dabble into some crime. David and Walter both faced charges of breaking and entering, and Walter was also charged for impersonating an officer. And by the time Catherine was 25, she had been convicted and served time in prison for possession, theft, and extortion. However, by the time the 90s rolled around, the family seemed to have a turnaround and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church and became so invested into the community, they were regularly featured in the denomination's publication announcing marriages and births. By 1994, the family decided to go into the retirement home industry, the first retirement home being Cedar Pines Christian Retirement Lodge where Joan once lived. According to reports, the home was ran by Catherine and housed about eight residents. Ultimately, the Lands had three retirement homes in the Huntsville area, and they had about 20 residents living on their properties at any given time. According to documents by the police, how the Lands would get these residents was to scour Toronto homeless shelters work their way past the shelter staff and ruse certain elderly residents who received old age security and other benefits and telling them they were quote senior consultant and placement officers if the elders were still unsure the lands would always make sure to have a brochure on hand showing them quote unquote attractive and affordable rooms registered nurses and dietitians However, further in the police documents stated that when residents arrived to the properties, they were often met with mattresses on the floor, foul odors, and staff were not qualified and left tenants on their own. According to a report, other documents stated that the lands actually hired friends and family to work on their properties, allegedly even if they didn't have the proper qualifications. When the lands operated their retirement homes at that time, Ontario didn't have strict laws regarding retirement homes, and they only had to make sure their buildings were up to code and tenants were protected. And allegedly, if their homes were not up to code, 
the lands would pay off people to get their homes up to par. Going back to the disappearance investigation, police learned from the social worker's original client, Joseph Paquin, who lived on the land's property, that he paid the family $400 a month to live in a tiny cabin he shared with another elderly resident. Joseph was visually impaired and he told the social worker and police that he had cleaned out the cabin by himself in the middle of winter and survived on a diet of craft dinner for nearly every meal. He went on to say he had no access to a telephone and therefore had no way to reach anyone in case of an emergency. The police also got a tip from a wife of a local lawyer who had visited the land property and said his client gave Catherine $700 for a furnace and when she was confronted by the lawyer, she gave the money back. There were many complaints of jewelry going missing and bank cards destroyed with some of the residents losing everything to the lands. By 1998, the same year Joan disappeared, Catherine sold the Cedar Pines home and moved to the United States. And in 1999, Walter and his family moved to Southern Ontario. Paul moved to Alberta, Canada, and Ron, their uncle, seemed to just disappear. In January 1999, a week before their last retirement home was closed, the lead detective in Jones' case interviewed one of the last few remaining residents, 70-year-old Ralph Grant. Ralph told police that he couldn't wash or feed himself and that he had difficulty speaking due to a surgery on his jaw. And after the last property closed, the residence allegedly moved to the private residence of its final manager. Continuing with the investigation, by July 2000, police discovered something else ghastly. There were two more seniors who couldn't be accounted for, 90-year-old John Semple and 71-year-old John Crofts. Later that year, in November, police added another name to the missing persons list, Ralph Grant, who had recently spoken with the lead detective. When police questioned the last property manager of where Ralph last lived, she said she had not seen him and did not go to her place when the retirement home closed. And even worse, during the investigation for the now four missing seniors, police discovered that their monthly checks were still being cashed and none of the land family reported any of the elders missing. Fast forwarding to 2002, Walter, his wife Karen, Paul, David, and Catherine were charged with fraud of $5,000 each, theft, and being involved in a pension check scam. According to reports, Paul and Walter pled guilty to their charges and received conditional sentences, restitution orders, and probation. Catherine was convicted, and according to court documents, she received a nine-month conditional sentence. For reasons unknown, charges against David and Karen were eventually dropped. And unfortunately, despite the extensive search into the disappearances of the four elders, no trace of them have been found and their bank accounts have been left untouched. Theories by the police suggest that all of the elders were murdered and could be in a mass grave 
or they could have been disposed of at the bottom of the lake that is adjacent to the land property. No one has been named as a suspect, and even though police have allegedly tried to question the land siblings further, they simply have not cooperated or cannot be tracked down for questioning. Paul and Catherine have not been located since the early 2000s. In 2005, Walter was convicted of several armed robberies, and by 2015, he was living in a Salvation Army campus in Scarborough. And as of 2017, a report states that he and David owned a gas service company where they offer a senior discount. Paul, the last brother, apparently lives in Seoul, South Korea, where he allegedly works at a private Seventh-day Adventist school. If the missing residents were alive today, they would be between the ages of 88 and 109, but it is highly unlikely they are still living. And according to a journalist, they said, quote, the only people alive who might know what happened at the land's homes may now be the land's themselves, end quote. The story of the disappearance of Joan Lawrence and three other elderly residents comes from the sources of the CBC, The Walrus, CTV, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, that was a tough one. Um, I should have put a disclaimer talking about elder abuse. I apologize for that. But uh, that's one of the first things I want to mention about this case is that this was honestly elder abuse. Now, the Lan family, and that is L-A-A-N. I'm unsure if it was Lan or Lawn. I apologize for the um, uh, misappropriation or mispronunciation of the, the last name. But um, they have not been charged or anything for the disappearances of the four elderly residents. But all signs point to them. Uh, I do not believe, along with uh, many reports um, and family members, that these four elder elders died naturally. I do not believe that at all. Um, I believe that these um, residents, specific, specifically Joan, um, were confronting the Lan or Lawn family about their missing money um, because it's obvious that allegedly this family was stealing from the residents. Uh, mostly the most cap uh, the most culpable culpable to be stolen from because according to reports they did not have much family, and they were the Lawn family, the Land family uh, were stealing these people's monthly checks and getting money out of them and making them live in squalid conditions because who puts an elderly person or anyone for that matter in a shed or in an unworking van or even better an attic like you sell the property to these people who are culpable and vulnerable and they're homeless and you're like oh this is a christian retirement home and this is um, grand. We have nurses. We have dietitians. You're going to get the best care. You know, we're like I said, we're Christian and we're senior consultants and things like that. And they were pretty, you know, culpable about these people like, oh, these people are going to try to save us. You know, we're homeless. They're going to put us in a nice place when they get there. They've already got you. You've probably already signed paperwork and now you're stuck. So now you're stuck in a cabin like um, 
One of the people, uh, like Joan, was stuck in an attic. She was complaining about the rent being too high, taking away her pension check monthly. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we'll put you in the shed. And she took it just because she can have her cats with her. Like, oh my gosh, like, that's some dire needs right there. And then somehow she's moved again to the an own, a non-working van. Like, really? Like, that's elder abuse to the max. And I'm not sure why, like, what's going on as to why the Lown family have not been charged or anything. Um, like I said in the um, episode, they are not cooperating, but that still does not really give um, to me, any excuses to why they're not be being investigated further. Maybe they don't have enough physical evidence, but all these witnesses have worked with the lands or lived on their property who are living, and they have told the police and social workers that their conditions were not good. This is what happened. I lived with. They lived. With, they lived with people that were not walking correctly, correctly talking correctly. Were not getting good ha- uh, health. Um, they were not getting adequate food. One article said that the land's explanation for them getting just craft dinners or rice and pasta was because they didn't believe eating in meat. And I don't think that's really accurate. I think it's because they wanted to save money and didn't want to pay for these people to have nutritious meals. They wanted them to eat whatever was thrown at them. And also them telling the ma- that one man that in the article who said, oh, they promised they would take me to the other retirement home to shower once a week, but it was once a month. But even once a week, that's not enough. That's not enough to take care of your hygiene, at least not in my opinion. And um, they uh, were stepping on Joan's cats allegedly to taunt her. Like, I don't know why they were taunting her. And that's another thing. Like, why was she in danger? She was obviously afraid of them and she saw things others did not see. So I don't know if they, you know, maybe hit her or yelled at her or forced her to um, give up her money. And uh, when she told the post office people to give her mail directly to her and not the lens. Shortly after that, she was gone. And shortly, and I don't know how they found the land family allegedly found out that she had gotten in contact with the law office to take up her case because her monthly check had been missing. And I just want to know, like, how did they get access to these bank accounts and how they get access to these checks? Like, I guess it's not really hard when, you know, you have no one to really fight against. Because like I said, these folks were really elderly, they were homeless, and they had no family contact for the most part and that's just really mucked up in my opinion you prey on the weak and getting their money that's theft and that's greed and when she said when Joan told a friend you just never know what he's going to do regarding Ron Allen the uncle of the land siblings it's like what did he do you know we don't know because they can't really find Ron allegedly according to reports the police cannot find Ron and they're like well you know what did he do to make her be afraid why didn't she want to go take a shower in the farmhouse where the main house where he lives and that's because you know she was up there taking a shower in the fast food restaurant or not showering with bathing into the in the fast food restaurant and it's like what did Ron do I hope it wasn't like you know what we can all insinuate happened but what was he like an angry man was he a ill-tempered man or did he we just don't know and we no one can find where ron allen is he may be in canada he may be in the states no one knows and what i read why joan did not have any family contact 
was because they had like a family like monetary issue like a dispute over like an inheritance or something and Joan pretty much left she gave like not gave up on the family but she didn't want to be bothered with them anymore now that was according to a report no one really knows why she left and wanted to just be like a hermit uh in a hermit type situation and just live with cats no one really knows and um I thought it was really sad and ironic with her um poem and that she wrote back in the 40s you know talking about being forgotten and the white rose just laying in a dusty corner that's pretty much how she lived the end of her days she was alone she had some friends I guess but more acquaintances but she was alone and it's really sad that it happened to Joan or any of the elderly residents and I like I said lastly I believe they were all murdered um more than likely by the Lawn family or associates of the family, all because they probably wanted the money or they were confronted by the elderly residents about where their money was and why they didn't have um, access to their funds anymore. Now, that's just my belief. That's what a lot of people believe. You all can draw your own conclusions. No one come at me <laughs> for saying something. Um, I hope I did not offend anybody. I don't think I did, but sometimes... Sometimes my words can be misconstrued. But like I said, I just believe that the Lawn family needs to be looked at harder and closer. And that's just my opinion on the case. And that's it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you are intrigued. Please let me know what you think about this episode on 90s Crime Time social media, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Also, if you'd like to monetarily support the show, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash 90s Crime Time and support there. And I still have some 90s Crime Time merch with the Lou, uh, not Lou, the new <laughs> logo on them if you're interested. And you can choose from a sticker, magnet, or shot glass. Um, and just DM me on Instagram, the 90s Crime Time Instagram page, if you'd like an item or two. Um, I just got freshly stocked um, merchandise. And if you like today's episode and have not left a review yet, I'd love for you to if you have Apple Podcasts, and hopefully it is a good review. Uh, most of you have been doing uh, good reviews on 90s Crime Time. I appreciate that. And some of you have been critical, and I appreciate that as well. Um, lastly, on the next episode, this was the special announcement or um, that I was mentioning earlier. Um, lastly, on the next episode of 90s Crime Time, I'm going to try something a little different on the show that will only occur like every once in a while. And you'll see what I mean on the next show. And with that, stay safe and healthy. Have a great weekend. And I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Mm-hmm.